0: I'm Ray Latif, and you're listening to the top podcast for the food and beverage industry, Taste Radio. This episode features an interview with Jason Wright, the co-founder and CEO of Wild Brands, an innovative brand of chicken and pork-based chips. Just a reminder to our listeners, if you like what you hear on Taste Radio, please share the podcast with friends and colleagues. And of course, we would love it if you could review us on the Apple Podcasts app or your listening platform of choice. Amazon founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, once explained that the e-commerce giant innovates by, quote, starting with the customer and working backwards. Jason Wright, the co-founder and CEO of Wild Brands, adopted a similar mindset for the development of the brand's unique chicken chips. Sensing an opportunity to innovate within the salty snack category, Jason, a serial entrepreneur who launched Wild in 2015, envisioned a meat-based chip, and saw himself as the prototypical customer for the product. Going from concept to scalable brand, however, was challenging and came with a number of missteps and setbacks. Yet, those growing pains ultimately paid off, and Wiles chicken chips and recently launched pork chips are now carried nationally at retailers, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, and Safeway. In the following interview, Jason chronicled his entrepreneurial journey, beginning as the co-founder of an upstart granola brand through to the debut of Wild, why the company pivoted away from bars and into chips, and how he convinced investors to buy into the strategy. He also explained why co-manufacturing was ultimately the wrong choice for Wild, working with retail buyers to establish a new protein-centric segment within the snack category, and how the company identified packaging callouts that would resonate most with consumers. Hey, folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. Right now, I'm on a call with Jason Wright, who is the co-founder and CEO of Wild Brands. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great, Ray. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Really fantastic now that I'm speaking with you. You know, your accent is so specific. I remember the first time speaking with you, and I was like, you know what? I think Jason's from South Carolina because I have a friend, Alan, who actually listens to the show quite often, and he's from South Carolina. He moved to Boston for a time And his accent is now, you know, a little screwed up. It's like half Boston, half South Carolina. (laughs) But before, I mean, I'm just assuming you are from South Carolina, right?
1: I am, Ray. You nailed it, man. From South Carolina. I went to college there. And and then I kind of like your friend, I hightailed it to the Northeast. Unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know which one to say. But for me, I was there 10 years, but I never lost this accent. So from day one to the last day I was there, people always, uh, you know, felt like I was fresh off the boat because this accent just stayed with me.
0: Yeah. You mentioned you, uh, you spent some time in the Northeast in New York city, and I'm pretty sure the reason you moved is because, uh, you spent some time as a fashion model in the city, right?
1: I did, you know, that uh, (laughs) feels to me like another lifetime, you know, like I'm ancient now, but in my early twenties, yeah, I got the opportunity to go up and, um, shoot for a particular apparel brand and, you know, I had a lot of fun and I said, well, hey, you know, why don't I try to do this, which is really what propelled me to get into natural foods because, you know, up into that point here in South Carolina, you know, I'm not really watching what I eat, but at that point, you know, I said, well, if I'm going to take this serious and you know, I'm going to work out, I'm going to eat right, which led me to Whole Foods and I don't know, I, I, I just grabbed a passion for starting to make my own healthy products which led me into the food industry so i really credit kind of getting into the fashion you know the modeling industry kind of was my vehicle to getting into cpg
0: what brands did you model for
1: abercrombie was one of them uh hanes was one of them so back in the old days i was underwear model but you know they would chop my head off so they had to pay me a lot or they would pay me a lot less if they chopped your head off and uh so you know i I was more of uh we'll say fit model. But uh, yeah, so that was uh, Wrangler uh, was one of them and and catalogs. But listen, it didn't last long. You know, there was no career for JW in the modeling industry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you talked about your passion for entrepreneurship and we'll get into the origins of your entrepreneurship. But in my intro, I mentioned that Wild makes chips out of chicken. And pork yes. as well. And I'm sure there are people listening being like, what, what? Okay. Yes. So just give folks an idea who haven't sampled your products. Give me an idea of what they should be expecting when they're eating your products.
1: Well, Ray, I got it right here. So I'm going to actually eat it on camera. You know, when we okay. develop this, you know, we, we start with chicken breast and our chicken, uh, chip lineup and then pork shoulder for our pork lineup. But my passion, I mean, really the vision, I should say, what I wanted this product was I wanted it to eat like a potato chip. Folks should expect this product to eat like a potato chip. It's crunchy, it's crispy. I never wanted the product to eat like jerky. When I started this product, we all love potato chips, but I don't do really well on a high carb diet. So the vision here was, well, let's replace the potato with protein, but I never wanted to lose that crunch. So that that's what customers should expect. They should expect it to be like a potato chip.
0: Well, that's uh, great to hear for a lot of listeners because I think some folks might be expecting like the the crispiness and the texture of, say, a pork rind.
1: Yeah. So you know, pork rinds, you know, really puffy and airy. But this product, you know, the way we've uh, come up and kind of uh, figured out how to make it, you know, we slice it as thin as we can compared to a potato chip, and and the product is a little bit more dense, like a potato chip, than you would consider like a puffy you know, pork rind. So just a total different process. You know, it's funny because when we developed this and I did it out of my kitchen, in theory, I thought I'm just going to take it to a pork rind facility because we had to be in a USDA facility. And that was the only facility I knew of that fried and seasoned pork rinds or or snacks, salty snacks. And I took it to a pork rind facility and, and I can assure you that that was not the way to make it, and we had to go down a whole different path at that point.
0: Well, we'll talk about that path shortly, uh, but let's back up a little bit and talk about your first brand, which was called Feed Granola. Uh, you explain, you know, that your passion for healthy living spurred this idea. But it's interesting because granola is pretty ubiquitous now. But when you started the company, it was more of a—it it felt like a little bit more of a natural food kind of thing. So, you know, why did you land on granola? Why was that the sort of opportunity that you saw for a brand?
1: Yeah, so the granola company was not something I ever set out to do. You know, I started making healthy snacks and I, you know, would go down to my local health food store in the city and, you know, buy seeds and nuts and fruits. And it was kind of a concoction I came up with. And, you know, lo and behold, friends and family liked the product. And, you know, I started selling it at the local gyms there in the city. And it kind of just by default, you know, it turned out that my first company was a granola company because I just made that as a healthy snack. You know, I didn't know about Bare Naked at the time, but we quickly, you know, I discovered them about, I don't know, six months into the brand. You didn't have uh, Instagram back then. You know, it was the old school days. You know, we're talking about early 2000. So I discovered them on the Food Network channel. And I was like, oh, man, here's a company that's, you know, three years ahead of us. And uh, then you start to see them on, you know, on store shelves everywhere. But looking back, I learned a lot there. But I would not have picked granola knowing what I know now.
0: You know, I think competition is one part of it. I'm sure you learned a lot from the experience. What was something else? I mean, what else did you learn from feed granola that you were able to incorporate? What were some of those lessons that you were able to incorporate into Wild?
1: Yeah. So right out of the gate, you know, a uh, big one comes to mind is being different in the market. I mean, it was tough with a granola because, you know, you got oats and nuts and, and fruit, but I had no staying power, you know, and that's what I didn't know then, but I know now, you know, compared to Bare Naked, it was a more superior product. The lessons I learned there that I took to Wild was, you know, we've got to be differentiated. You know, there's got to be uh, something that, you know, is our flag in the sand and not just a Me Too product. So that was a big lesson learned. Uh, Another lesson learned was because of those modeling days, we got a lot of PR. My business partner and I, he was a model as well. So we got a lot of PR, which propelled us to get a lot of distribution. And we just opened stores. We were not disciplined to say, hey, whoa, we're growing too fast. You know, we, we don't have maybe the capital to support all this distribution. We just didn't know at the time. And, you know, that was another thing here at Wild. I really focused on nailing our product, trying to really perfect our product before I started to gain distribution. And so that was two big learning curves for me.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned PR because I think PR is something that is so important in everything related to new food and beverage companies. Uh, You need to get the word out and you need to get the word out in a really positive and effective manner, especially out of the gate. But from what I'm hearing is sometimes PR can backfire on you if you are not prepared for the uh, distribution and retail opportunities that are coming your way.
1: We were fortunate. Um, It was like a PR dream. You know, we were on, um, I don't know if you remember the TV show, The Entrepreneur by Donnie Deutsch. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. So he did a thirty-minute show on us. So they aired it, and then and then he brought us onto his show. And so from that, just uh, we started getting a ton of PR hits. But business side, we were not prepared. You know, we we had not perfected the product. We didn't have the capital to just go and support all your uh, promotions and and marketing efforts. And then we were sitting, you know, beside a more superior product, you know, and, and bare naked. At this moment in time, I would love to have all those PR opportunities.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, explaining and communicating to the uh, end consumer what your product is all about is really important. PR certainly helps in that way. And again, we'll talk a bit about education as it relates to chicken and pork chips. But, uh, you know, post-feed, you stayed in the food business and started working for a startup called Yum Nuts. What was Yum Nuts all about?
1: It was like an air-dried cashew. Basically, it was two guys that um, were partners over at Bare Naked that were friends of mine that started the business, and um, we basically wound feed down. Uh, we just got to a point where you know you couldn't get a lot of support for it, and we made some mistakes with a lot of learning curves. So I decided to go over and join Tyler Ricks and Jerome Mativiar, and we, we basically launched uh, Yum Nuts, and it was a very unique product. It was air-roasted, I should say, so... It almost felt like or sound like dice in your hand. Like it was a really unique product. But I think the problem was we couldn't figure out if we were a health product or a candy, you know, because we Hmm. had flavors like coconut covered. We had chocolate. And we really never determined if the customer was eating it because they wanted a healthy option because it was low in sugar. But then there was still that sugar, you know, and that kind of candy like And I think we just got the positioning wrong. And outside of that, it was a commodity. So when you got ninety-nine point nine percent of your product tied up in a commodity, and then the commodity obviously in, in our case, cashews went through the roof, you know, we had a problem with our pricing structure. But it was a fun experience, you know, another learning curve, but a fun experience.
0: It's funny you mention that one of the issues with Yum Nuts is that it was a commodity, essentially a commodity brand. Because your next job is with the wonderful company now. You know, pomegranates weren't necessarily a commodity in the United States back in the day, a little bit more so today. Obviously, pistachios as well, also commodity products. So, you know, how did going to the wonderful company reshape, I guess, your perspective on food and support that entry back into entrepreneurship as the founder, co-founder of Wild?
1: One thing I learned at Yum Nuts with a commodity is you better own the farm. So if you're going to compete <laughs> with the guy who grows, uh, you know, all the produce, you need to own it. So when I went to Palm, wonderful, wonderful brands, you know, they have pistachios, they have pomegranate and the Resnicks, they own vertically integrated. They farm, you know, they produce and then they have the brand piece of it. And so that kind of started to plant the seed in my head as, you know, I knew I wanted to go do my own thing again. But it planted a seed in my head was my next adventure. I would like to be as vertically integrated as possible, control, you know, everything from A to Z. So that was a, an experience that uh, really kind of instilled in me like vertically integrated next project.
0: Let's talk about the original idea for Wild. It wasn't chips. It was not. It was something else. What was it?
1: Yeah, so it was a meat-based protein bar. And, um, Kind of another situation that I almost, you know, got myself into when I look back at feed. I was living in Austin. I was training for a marathon. I was eating jerky. I was combining it with granola. And the idea popped in my head. was like, why couldn't we have a, you know, meat-based protein bar? You know, kind of a protein bar, you know, kind of meats jerky. So I go down this path, uh, and that's what Wild was born as. But here I am going down this path. And here I go discover
0: Epic, right? And so I'm chuckling because because I've been by the Epic headquarters <laughs> in Austin. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. So at the time they were not there, so uh,
1: they didn't have their South Congress. Basically, I was in a little gym right outside the city, and they had a little juice bar. And boom, I walked into the juice bar, and I could see this packaging, and I saw the animal. And it was clever, you know. I was like, I know what that is. And they were not in Whole Foods yet. But it's same similar situation to feed, you know, they already had a product on shelf. Here I was, you know, still trying to develop what I was going to launch. And so they were ahead of us. And, you know, the industry's small. So as I started to dig around, like they were already partnering up with Coman that we potentially was going to approach. So at that point, I decided, well, let's move the boulder. Let's take wild the boulder. If I launch this brand in the backyard of that thing, they're already here. They're already established you know, that just didn't seem right to me. So I tuck it the Boulder and, you know, the bar industry, the, our bar never took off. A lot of other brands tried bars, but Epic really, you know, they owned the market, they were first in the market. And then at the end of the day, the bar, the kind of meat-based protein bar was a very small category. You know, here we were, we were facing some tough decisions. Brands launched, brands not doing well. I really need to pivot. And I knew that I couldn't pivot for a jerky. I couldn't pivot for a stick. Like I had to have a wild factor. And I had this idea about the chip. And, um, you know, I, I worked tirelessly in my kitchen to give my investors a prototype. And at that time, we were starting to lose a lot of faith from current kind of investors and got very fortunate that, you know, I got this product in front of them, got this product in front of some new investors, the chips. And uh, a lot of people saw, you know, a big, big idea here. And and, you know, that's how we transition from the bar to the chip.
0: I'm curious, why, why not do jerky? Why not do meat sticks? Was that category, were those categories already too crowded? Was it just gonna be tough to differentiate from the products, existing products out there?
1: The answer to your question, yes, but I think also there was that little voice in my head that said, Remember your granola days, don't do a Me Too product. And you know, I'd already launched Wild as a meat-based protein bar. So I'd already done something. I told myself I was not going to do it. <sighs> it didn't start out like that. And I didn't know Epic was already there and you know how far along they were. And the the pivot point of going to the chip or going to the next product, there was no way I was going to uh, launch a Me Too product. So I gravitated towards that chip. I thought it was really one, innovative, but something that, you know, I was uh, really passionate about, that crunchy, that crispiness, eating like a potato chip. And the fact that it had never been done before, you know, that really drove me.
0: Were your investors scared of this idea? Were they in love with this idea? Was it a little bit of both? Yeah. We had some tough conversations with current investors. You know, I remember one
1: person in particular saying, Jay, you can talk about innovation all day long, but we need a fix today. And we just, you know, th- this project, and we'll get into it, but it did not happen overnight. Obviously, there was a lot of hurdles. But I was fortunate to meet Bill Moses, who is a star in our industry. And he uh, introduced me to Alan Carp. And these guys really, really liked this product. They liked the innovation piece of it. And, um, you know, they came on as, as new investors. And um, didn't really want to even look at the bar or think about the bar. They were focused on this chip. And, you know, they kind of helped pave the way and, and helped me get through a lot of hurdles. Had those guys not come on, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the current situation was a little dodgy. You know, we were pretty much unsuccessful with the bar. And here we were going to go through a new transition period. And, and it takes time to get a product to market. But those guys came on and helped a lot. And uh, we all, you know, doubled down on the chip. And uh, we went full steam ahead.
0: This is uh, really eye opening. I think uh, for folks who are listening, in that, you know, as one of your investors mentioned, you can talk about innovation all day long, but you've got to fix today. You've got to show that you can create a viable product line, right? And to hear that CARP invested on an idea, it sounds like is pretty amazing. What was your What was your pitch? He tells me today, he said, you know, looking back, I don't know if I should have invested in that or not. You know, like <laughs> I
1: didn't realize it was going to take this on. But you know, he, um, he and Billy Logan, which is a partner there, uh, his partner and, and Bill Moses, uh, you know, I basically pitched them the prototype. And uh, at the time we were still, uh, what will the packaging look like, which is a whole nother story that, you know, we we redid later. But um, they just believed in the product. They thought, you know, there's a space here. People like low-carb, folks like high-protein, and they were really amazed at the product eating like a potato chip. And, uh, you know, they knew that there would be growing pains, and they knew uh, we had to figure out manufacturing, but it intrigued them. And um, I think we kept showing progress, like, you know, figuring out how to manufacture it, going through making custom-built equipment. But they were constantly seeing us moving in the right direction and, you know, kept supporting the brand. You know, I think they came in in maybe 2000, late 2017, and we didn't put a product on shelf until late 2018. So there was you know, a, a year of a transition period of kind of relaunching.
0: Yeah, I think I remember first trying the chips at uh, Expo East. It might have been 2018. And I think uh, Wild was one of the most buzzed about brands because when people talk about innovation, you know, you guys represented it. The chicken chip was true innovation. No one had ever seen anything like that, or at least, you know, most people in our industry hadn't seen anything like that. Getting to the chip itself, getting to be able to sample the chip, I'm sure required a lot of trial and error. How did you, I guess, initially think of production? I know you talked about, you know, going to a pork rind facility and talking to those folks, but um, I guess, how did you go from... Here's what I made in my kitchen to. Here's the finished product. And this is I. I know this is a question that a lot of early stage entrepreneurs have.
1: You know that first time at Expo when we when we showed you guys, we had already went through the Port Rohn facility and knew that that wasn't going to work. So come back. I worked with a close friend, Derek Spores, who's in the industry, and he has a little food lab, and we set up basically a basket fryer. And I went to a machine shop, and we came up with this top belt. That basically makes our signature wave uh, in the product. But there's multiple reasons why we had to have this. That we discovered when we went to the Port round facility why Port rum facility wasn't going to work. But we basically, you know, hand fried all these samples that you saw at Expo. We then went and met with uh, one of the top manufacturer of fryers here in the U.S. Uh, they also are very popular out in um, other parts of the world, but. I thought we'd walk in and you know say here's here's kind of what we figured out, and we we really you know I say we fried, but it's like a crisp because it's really in such a shallow. It's more like a searing. Uh, but I you know we have a meeting with with this manufacturing company, and lo and behold, they they're like we've never done anything like this. But after we kind of explained how we thought we could do it, you know they took a leap of faith and went down the path, and tr- we we basically created a prototype machine first. So we took this prototype machine and we uh, put it into a manufacturer that had empty space, and we uh, basically did more testing. We originally thought that this test fryer would allow us to launch, but we discovered that you know there was still a lot of problems we had to work out. So fast forward, learning from the prototype, and then that propelled us to actually go and you know produce the first uh, wild fryer which still came with a lot of problems, but we were able to use that product or use that machine to launch late 2018 in the Whole Foods and in the Sprouts. But, yeah, that, that's just one piece of it. You know, if you start to look at, like, how do you get a chip made of chicken breast to act like a potato, you know, to, to, to slice like a potato, that was a whole nother piece. You know, there's two big processes the wild, and you really can't have one without the other and vice versa. So it was a huge learning curve.
0: Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I guess I was just thinking of like a chicken breast, a cooked chicken breast that you would slice into thin uh, chips and then fry those. That's certainly not how you make this this product. You would know if you were, li- if you were listening, you would know if you saw the chip, you'd know that's not what it is. So you, you had this machine. Do you have a patent on the machine? We do. We have a patent on the top belt. So, you know, we uh, just
1: basically discovered, you know, and with the help of the manufacturer, the prior manufacturer that This has definitely never been done in the food industry. And, uh, you know, you guys should move forward, try patent it. And we did.
0: It sounds like having this machine in a co-packing facility might cause some issues and that the co-man might want to use that machine for other products. So did you run into any issues with your co-man?
1: You know, we did. I tell entrepreneurs all the time when, because here today where I'm sitting at, we're in Winchester, Kentucky. We have a 50,000 square foot facility that we just opened late last year. So like, you know, we control all the processes here. But in those early days, we didn't have the budget or the vision, uh, you know, as far as uh, there's so many moving parts. To go do our own facility at that moment was just not in the cards. And so we did put it into a co-man who, you know, you can find them around the country. They'll have open space. You put your equipment in, install it. So we did that, and uh, we just had a lot of problems. We had problems where we were still operating the line, we were still making the product, yet we were paying hefty, you know, toll fees uh, that come with uh, Coman. And then, you know, this particular Coman had a lot of larger meat-based companies. So this product, obviously being meat, you got to operate under USDA. So you can think about any manufacturer out there that's making jerky, is making sticks. And so we had some problems. You know, there was a lot of curiosity in the industry when we launched. And so there was times when folks that shouldn't be seeing our operation were seeing our operation were seeing inside, I'll call it the, you know, the gut of the uh, fryer, you know, which is where the magic is inside. It's unfortunate, but those things, those things happen.
0: Yeah. It's that or raise the capital to build your own manufacturing facility, which, yeah, doesn't seem like a viable option for a lot of folks. How did you get your investors, I keep going back to your investors, how did you get them to buy into this idea of hey, we can't work with this co-packer anymore, co-man anymore. We need to build our own place. That must have been a fun conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was um, you know, I think um we were doing all the work. You know, there was a lot of fine tuning the product and I found myself and most of my team members found themselves in the operation side working the line. And then when we started to look at all the time we were spending on the line because we just couldn't trust the co-man to make a a product to our standards, you know, and there's a lot of moving parts and wild. I, I mean, I, I get it. And it was being done for the first time. You know, I basically put a potato chip line in a USDA facility that had never been done before. So there's so many different things that you got to look for. But when you started to look at how much we were spending, case-wise, toll fee-wise, indirect overhead, you know, they were renting a space to us on top of that, it started to make sense that we should just go and do our own thing. And we had learned because we were forced to run that line. We had learned so much that we felt confident enough that, hey, we can go and do our own manufacturing facility. And so, you know, with the help of my finance team who, you know, we put together some really good plans that showed where we would get our return on our investment if we invested into a our own facility. We started to open up a lot of eyes. You know, Alan got behind it. You know, we have a strategic partner that once we knew that our equipment was getting shown, that strategic partner said, you know, you guys really need to get all these secrets under one roof. And, you know, you're going to continue to learn some things. And so, You know, I think that conversation with the board really pushed our investors and myself to say, you know, we need to go do our own manufacturing facility. It's tough because, you know, if there's a product that can be easily co-manned, I probably would not suggest you go do your own manufacturing facility because you can get very price competitive. And the co-man has a lot more experience running a product, that, whether it's a potato chip or some type of puff, you know, that's been done before. In our case, with the product never been done before, there were so many secrets we didn't want out in the trade. So that was the big reason, one of the big reasons we wanted to go put this under one roof, close the doors, and do it ourselves.
0: All right. So you've perfected the recipe. You've got a place where you can make this product to your specifications Everything should fall into place at this point, right? It's easy, you know. <laughs> but well, there's a big question of, of how are you going to get people to eat this product? How intuitive are chicken chips over the past three years? I mean, what have you seen from consumers? What have you heard from consumers and retail buyers about the idea of chicken chips? Are do they understand it from the get go?
1: No, not 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 at all. Right. <laughs> In the early days, well, I say early days, you know, 2019, we were doing a lot of demos, we were only in Whole Foods, Sprouts, and we were doing a lot of education. We were listening to what the customer wanted to hear about the product and what we had missed on with the packaging. We convinced Whole Foods that an animal-based set in salty snacks was a good route to go. There was a shopper, keto shopper. There was a CrossFit shopper. There was a You know, fitness shopper, low carb shopper that had basically stopped going down this aisle. And in order to get this customer back into the aisle, you know, we needed a destination. So we helped create the animal based protein set, which consists of epic pork rind and 4505 and wild and lesser evil, you know, animal based salty snacks. And that set became one of the fastest growing subcategories for Whole Foods. But until that point, you know, we, we were basically getting lost. We were getting lost in potato chips or getting lost in corn chips or, you know, tortilla chips. So that really, that set helped have a destination for people to go. But until this, you know, up until today, people still don't quite get their head around the chicken chip when they first hear about it. Now, we've recently launched pork chips, which I can tell you it is a, a much more open to try it, like consumers just, they don't even ask questions. They just, they, they want the product. You know, they're like, that's delicious. That sounds great. I want to try it. You know, and I think that goes back to the fact that pork had been done in jerky, had been done in sticks, had been done in pork rinds, and people, you know, are used to eating it in a ready-to-eat format. Uh, and I think that's probably some pushback we get with chicken.
0: In that pitch to Whole Foods, when you were advocating for an animal-based Protein or animal-based salty snack set. How much of your pitch was about data versus the story of hey, keto consumers, CrossFit consumers are going to want this product?
1: I got very lucky. Our buyer at the time, David Woods, you know, he he's real big into CrossFit and real big into the keto community. And he had actually, you know, had the idea as well. And hearing it pitched from our side, you know, I think he got his wheels turning. He kind of had really thought about how to bring these type of consumers back into this salty snack aisle. And so he was a big champion of helping drive this for us. You know, he got it right out of the gate. He felt that uh, with the rise of premium pork rinds, you know, you had the, the Epic and the 4505, and and they were already starting to see good sales there. And then it was a no-brainer to, to just group these items all together. So some data, but a lot was just timing. There was David. He was thinking this as well, and he helped champion the subcategory. So I got to give a lot of credit to him.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess the brands that are involved with the set as well, did you have communication among your competitors, I guess, about... The potential for this set i know that's probably a weird conversation to have but i mean were you talking to you, to these guys from 505 and and epic
1: no david kind of took that role on and kind of <laughs> talked to all the brands and said here's what i'm thinking here's what i'm going to do but uh you know we we built the set and we we brought it in on our presentation and showed hey we believe these items should be placed together and you know he kind of ran with it from there
0: well there you go make his job a little bit easier Again, going back to the end consumer, once they see this set, once they see these brands grouped together, they still want to know: okay, what does it taste like? What am I going to experience? What should I expect from this product? So, in terms of hierarchy or, or product attributes, uh, hierarchy or product attributes, you know, what did people want to see? What what resonated most with consumers?
1: What we learned was that number one, it was texture they could not believe that the texture was like a potato chip. And that was really a roadblock for them because, you know, a lot of folks thought this is going to eat like a jerky, uh, like a dried jerky. And so we had to really push that texture. It's going to, you know, it's going to perform like that potato chip. We had to push taste, which comes with a combination of of our flavors that we combine, especially on the pork line up, like, It's actually flavors that you'll find, you know, traditional pork, whether it's pulled pork, whether it's pork tacos, and then the protein. A lot of folks, you know, they, they love the fact that they can have this experience of a chip. It tastes great, but yet they're getting 10 grams of protein from complete protein, you know, and not just like a powdery protein concentrate that's used to make a salty snack. Plenty of those exist. I never wanted to go that route because it's just uh, texture wise, I, and, and it just seems to me it never delivers. But that's really what we've found is like that texture, the taste, the protein. And then I'd say, fourth is the low carb effect, you know, with 50% less carb and potato chip, folks are really, you know, they, they like that number. That's really what we find people, you know, saying about it, you know, after they try it.
0: You touched on this earlier about um, packaging and, you know, you've gone through a number of iterations of not just your bag, but your logo itself. How'd you end up with the current iteration?
1: So when we first started Wild, uh, you know, we had the bar and we thought about the bar package and the logo was, um, it was a hand-drawn logo. It was kind of tilted to the side. You know, I kind of think it was kind of ranchy. You know, it kind of had that rancher feel. And as we transitioned to the chip, and and if I back up, we did use that logo on the first round of our chip package. But what we found, you know, this product is so out of the box, we had to have a showstopper. Like, we had to be very bold at the end of the day to get people to want to pick the product up and and figure out really what it was. So we did uh, a lot of consumer research, worked with a great agency. And basically just said, you know, at this point, we need to really establish this brand. And so at this point, we'll change anything. We'll change logo. We'll change, you know, the feel, the the personality of the brand. And so we just said, we want to go down this path. Here's what we've learned through all of our demos. And we really want a bold, bold package. And so we, uh, we went away from the kind of ranch style feel even though I still wear a lot of my old t-shirts, you know, because I do like that logo to, you know, where, what we have today.
0: Well, for folks watching the video, you can see the dozen bags behind Jason and that logo is bold. It takes up almost a third of the front of the package. And to me, it, it screams conventional. And, and I mean that in a really good way. And I think your old packaging was a little bit more natural specialty grocery. So, you know, based on that, I assume you see a future for Wild that is broad in terms of channel. You know, starting out in Whole Foods, winning in Whole Foods has been great for the brand. But where do you see Wild going from here?
1: We have a big partnership coming uh, with Kroger at the end of the year. We have some partnerships with some, uh, you know, 7-Eleven and some C-Store Channel. So at the end, we want to appeal to the masses. We want to um, have a product that uh, that people feel good about snacking on with any of these brands. You know, I think um, you gotta win in natural. But then after you win in natural, like you really need those, you need the Kroger, you need Costco to really make a business out of this and make a true brand uh, with staying power. You need to be able to, to really be successful in, in, you know, a club channel and a grocery channel. And we did feel like the old package uh, was too ranchy, and that it it would not speak the boldness and the innovation that was inside the bag. So we really had to go down this route, and as you say, kind of lend more to a conventional consumer or speak to a conventional consumer with this style of package.
0: Well, you know, Seven Eleven certainly makes a lot of sense, especially with the pork chips. Again, you know, that point of reference that consumers have with pork rinds. How have the pork chips been received to date? Because I know they're pretty new.
1: Yeah, and I got to get you some. Uh, So um, we launched Whole Foods end of January. We launched Sprouts early February. It's only in those two stores. It's on our website. You know, we've done very well there. But the product's been well received. You know, the, the lineup, I think we learned so much from the chicken, and we applied that to the pork. You know, the lineup, you know, we have golden mustard barbecue, which takes us back to your your friend, Alan, and, and, and my childhood growing up in the Carolinas and eating mustard-based barbecue. We've got black pepper bacon and sweet chipotle. So I, I think that lineup is probably going to be the home run of the portfolio, you know, here within the next 12 months. Although currently today, you know, it just has limited distribution. Um, but there's a lot, all new customers coming on. Uh, they're heavily, you know, pork
0: skewed. All right. Well, I guess we'll be looking for a pepperoni chip in 2022 (laughs)
1: perhaps. (laughs) I I don't know. We'll try it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's been so great speaking with you, Jason. I feel like this has been a long time coming because, you know, we talk a lot about innovation in the food and beverage industry. and, And as I mentioned, you guys represent it. And it's so great to see you know where you were and where you are now, and I wish you all the success going forward. Hopefully, we'll see you in person uh, later this year, perhaps at Expo East. It'll be a little uh, a little reunion from three years ago.
1: <laughs> but after this pandemic, man, I cannot. We are going to Expo East, and I cannot wait to socialize and uh, well, I can't wait to take all the products and show them off, and uh, and hopefully uh, we'll have adult beverage uh, the two of us uh, at some time, you know, during Expo. Um, yeah, I think it'll be fun, but we definitely are looking forward to getting out there and, and, and you know, talking to folks again.
0: Well, how about this? I'll bring the adult beverage. You bring the chips. That's a deal, my man. <laughs> deal indeed. Jason, That's a deal. so great speaking with you again, and uh, let's make it happen.
1: Yeah, Ray. Hey, thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Had a great time, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at Expo.
0: Indeed. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to our guest, Jason Wright. As always, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of the entire Taste Radio team, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time.